crush your enemies. They drew first blood, not me. See them driven before you? Oh, my user. And they hear the lamentation of the women. But I pity the fool. Glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. Phone home. They're here. Oh, real light sleeper, child. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s and some not so major film releases in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Splits, released January 1st, 1982. That's always code for This Barely Exists. It was written by Bianca Littlebaum, Harry Azorin, Dominic Paris, and Kelly Van Horn directed by Dominic Paris, and released by Film Ventures International. And it's all ampersands. Yeah, they wrote it together. They all wrote it together. In one afternoon. (laughs) I have no making of notes for this film. It exists. I can verify that much. The film starts at the front gates of Hooter College, a clever and subtle foreshadowing of the film's content. Did Hooters exist at this point? The restaurant? Yeah. I was going to say boobs definitely what? did. <laughs> I, assume, I assume that boobs did. Yeah. I also assume that the nickname for boobs did, but I was just curious if the restaurant did. I, I don't know about that. This is before I started going to the Hooters in Santa Monica and <laughs> winning their weekly film trivia during college because nobody else knew there was film trivia. Were you the only one doing trivia? <laughs> it was me and like four other guys from Seaside and we would just win every week and all of our stuff was free until the day they stopped doing it because <laughs> they were like, only one team knows any answers. No, get out. But I have nowhere else to go. It started in 83. So okay. it's a no. Not yet. This well, with this movie, it. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a voiceover introduces us to the campus as if we were the incoming freshman class. But it turns out this voiceover is the internal monologue of a character whose thoughts will repeatedly and needlessly interrupt the film moving forward. Walk proudly, all ye who pass through these gates. For these are the gates of knowledge. They may lead to virtue or vice, to happiness or misery, to success or failure. Or, as in this particular case, to corruption, to senseless, random acts of violence, to vile and diseased sexual perversities. Although, I will point out, it's not always internal monologue. Yeah, sometimes Sometimes. it's like narration, (laughs) and sometimes it's... Sometimes he's actually talking, but he's talking to people in, like, the second person. Yeah. Um, Also, I question some of the things he talks about in this opening speech, where he talks about vile and diseased sexual perversities. Yeah. I was like, why do they have to be diseased? (laughs) I don't know. That's, That's his thing. This is the voice of Chuck, played by Chuck McQuarrie, who kind of looks like Jeffrey Combs and Walter Koenig had a baby together. Uh, he hops into a convertible and drives around trying to read directions off a piece of paper. More voiceover tells us he's a talent manager, and we see him knocking on a dressing room door looking for someone named Tweeter. After no response, he pushes into the room and finds Tweeter wrapped in unspooled magnetic tape blowing around the room like a wind machine. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone in a room full of unspooled magnetic tape? I do. What was that? Sleeper. That's right. Chuck tells Tweet he needs help promoting his girl band, The Splits, and in the middle of assuring him he came to the right place, the tweeter is cut off mid-sentence by a fang wipe. About my band, they're they're three girls, they're called The Splits. Listen, everything's gonna be sweet because you came to the tweet. I can 
make you a bitch. <laughs> it just cuts cuts to the next scene. Who cares what he was going to say? And suddenly, Robin Johnson, as Gina Napoleoni, turns to face directly into camera and speak into her lipstick like a microphone. Too many different filmic tools going on already at the same yeah. time. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Robin Johnson as a band member? Mm. I can tell you the name of the band. Uh, I know the movie. I just, I'm trying to think of the name of the movie now. Uh, Times Square? Times Square. Mm -hmm. The Sleaze Sisters. I can lick your face. <laughs> so... Uh, my note here is like she's giving off serious Gozer vibes. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yes. Like, Robin Johnson is a total Gozer. <laughs> you are absolutely right. She walks around introducing us to the band, starting with Susie, who's reading a diet book, and then she just abandons that. She's not introducing us to anybody else. I had to figure out who Joan was on my own. <laughs> when Chuck enters the room, they all celebrate and crowd around him like he's their Bosley. He's here with an important announcement for the band, but then he just says they have a show and they barely react before we cut to the show. That was the perfect, I couldn't figure out the way to describe, because he has like front door privileges and like, yeah. like they're not even fully dressed, but they're all like, oh, hey, they don't care. Oh, yeah, yay, he's here. It, 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 it's a lot like, I guess the closest thing that we've, as far as movies we've done would be like all the marbles. Sure, yeah. Like with uh, uh, Peter Falk. Just yeah. Like, I can just walk in on these girls anytime because it's. And he's I, probably already had sex with both of them anyway. Unlike Chuck here. I don't think that's Chuck's MO. Instead of seeing a crowd enjoying the show, Chuck's voiceover just tells us they were there because there's nobody here. There's nobody on set for this show. Uh, the first mostly empty venue is actually being played by the historic CBGB Music Club in Manhattan. I don't know how they got access to that and then mm -hmm. used it not at all. Chuck is smoking a cigarette and the bald man lighting it uses what looks like a hook hand lighter. Mm -hmm. The man also sports an eye patch handlebar mustache and a parrot on his shoulder because why not i guess like <laughs> i feel like this guy just showed up in a costume and they were like this is great you're gonna light this cigarette chuck asks where the bathroom is and the man points it out before giving his parrot a sip of beer oh no no hold on there, there's more there's a joke okay here. What did there's I a miss? joke here that actually got a genuine laugh out of me because i was just like what is this <laughs> he he keeps he's acting like he's afraid of the guy he's like Where's the men's, the, the rem's, then he goes, the, the rem's moon? Like, where's the rem's moon? And the guy throws a knife at the direction of the door, and a knife hits the door, but the actual door says rem's, rem's moon. moon. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? I did not notice that. And I was like, okay, that's a funny little payoff. <laughs> there are a couple little jokes like that where I was like, that's funnier than it needed to be, <laughs> considering the rest of the film. A giant guy wanders into the bar and sits down to stare directly at Susie while she plays. She recognizes him as Warwick from a psychology class they took together. The man yanks a column out of the floor to give himself an unobstructed view of the stage. He approaches and invites Susie to the World Series because he has tickets, like in the middle of a song. When she responds by flipping him off, he bites through the power cord to the stage and then cuts off their music, demanding to see their manager. He wanders into the bathroom to threaten Chuck, and somehow the band has resumed the show without electricity on stage. When Chuck explains that he only represents the band and he can't make the girls date him, Warwick replies with probably the funniest line of the film, appearing sadly early in the script. You know, you make a reasonable point there, Chuck. I'm being irrational. You're not the object of my anger. I'm merely displacing it on you because, well, because you're convenient. It's my own sense of inadequacy that disturbs me. Now, if I'm going to deal with this thing maturely i'm just gonna have to handle it all on my own those are wise thoughts warwick yeah 
Chuck is released from his chokehold, and we cut to Emil with guitarist Gina's mafioso father the next day. Her dad is annoyed because they're already running late to this meeting. While he waits, he heckles his layabout nephew Vinny, played by comedian Dom Herrera. Vinny doesn't even hear his uncle talking until he lies that there's a girl with big boobs here, and that gets Vinny's attention. There's a line where he's walking around nervous, the father, and his wife says, why don't you go upstairs and take a crap? That always relaxes you. Yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> and then suddenly, like, the voiceover from Chuck cuts in here to address mm-hmm. him. It's like, why don't you get a hold of your bodily functions? And it's like, you weren't even here. Mm-hmm. How do you know that conversation yeah. happened? Then we heart wipe to a local college campus where we learn that Chuck and Gina are late meeting with her father because they previously made plans to attend Hooter College Sorority Day. Mm -hmm. Just show up and watch people compete. They have no vested interest in this. They don't know any of these people. I don't know why they're here. And this is where his narration is something along the lines of, uh, and and this was the day the band and I had all been waiting for sorority day. But when the camera cuts to him, he's saying the word sorority day. Oh, that's it's very like, weird. So wait, he was saying. Did this, you just say that to them? Yeah, it's like the, <laughs> this is what the band and I were looking for. Like they they're with you right now. Yeah. Are you still recording that audio book? It's very strange. This is the point at which it feels like we took two completely different scripts and just yes. smashed them uh-huh. together. A hundred percent. Gina is annoyed that they made dinner plans with her dad at the same time as this college event, watching random cheerleader squads. Chuck, we gotta go. My dad can be very nasty if I'm late for dinner. Rumor has it they do nasty things with pom-poms. What can you do with a pom-pom that's so nasty? Now, is this my misunderstanding about what sororities are? Because cheerleaders or cheer teams or squads or whatever are not the same thing as sororities. No, every single sorority has its own cheerleading squad, and they all go to every game and compete for best cheerleading I don't, squad. I don't understand this confusion, because even the title of the movie, Splits, implies that these are cheerleaders, but then we very clearly don't have two groups of cheerleaders yeah, here. They we have never one group cheer. of cheerleaders, and, and, and one group is just a sorority. I, I feel like what this is supposed to be is some kind of initiations, like... You like you can get into our into our sorority if so you're it's really like good. Hell week. Yeah, but no, like you like because there's gonna be like a race, like a foot yeah. race. It's like you can get into our sorority if you're really good at cheerleading. Show us your best cheers. Oh, uh, like that's just that's grasping at straws. But they all have their own uniforms. Yeah, it's like why do multiple sororities at the same school already have different uniforms? It's w- for cheerleading. It's weird. Like I don't understand the the difference here and why they have stuff associated with cheerleading at all. Yeah. And it's unclear why Chuck and the girls are even here, but considering the entire scene is badly ADR'd, I'm guessing this whole sequence was like an afterthought anyway. They were like, oh, let's just put this when they were supposed to be at dinner, and they'll just say stuff about how they're late for dinner. Because the camera's never on them when they're talking about it. They seem to be scouting girls from the Sigma Phi and Delta Phi sororities, like, for their band? Or for a different girl band? Mm -hmm. I don't understand why they're here, and you can't tell from looking at someone in a cheerleader outfit what a good musician they are, or if they have any interest in it at all. We see a girl named Bernice apply in person to the Sigma house as a legacy after her sister graduated in 72, and she is brutally rejected by the squad. They point Bernice in the direction of the Phi Beta sorority, who appear to be the Omega Moos of this story. Yeah, I was super excited because I had, I heard Phi Beta and I was like, oh my god, I think that's the name of the fraternity for Mystery Men, but I misremembered it was Phi Zeta in Mystery Men, and I got, oh, I was so mad at myself. I'm disappointed in you. (laughs) Kind of lazy that all three sororities have Phi in their name, though. 
Bernice is welcomed into the Phi Beta house and offers to run an upcoming race for them. Everyone looks intimidated as a car drives out onto the field and Chuck recognizes it as Dean Hunta's car. What is going on here? Why are you nonchalantly scouting cheerleaders while Gina's mobster dad is already furious that you're late to dinner? Dean Hunta, played by Shirley Stoller, rolls down the backseat window and pulls off her sunglasses to watch the race, and the competitors are called to the starting line to begin. The leaders of the Sigma and Delta Phi houses are racing against Bernice of the Phi Betas, and right as Bernice is passing the Sigma captain, she is shoved off the track to the ground. We get more voiceover from Chuck all the way to Gina's dad's place, and he's just blathering about nothing. Before they head inside, he makes a special point to share the one food that he doesn't enjoy. I'll eat anything except fish. I hate fish. Ever since I was a kid and my older brother put live guppies in my soup. Yeah. Oh, boy. I can't wait to see what the payoff of this joke is No idea. Be. No idea. <laughs> Gina announces her arrival by tossing a pack of firecrackers in the window, and they all know it's her. Oh, Gina's home! When Dad meets Chuck, the manager, he wants to know what kind of percentage Chuck is taking of his daughter's money, but Gina urges them to the dinner table, and you'll never guess what they're having. I hope you like fish. I love fish. I love it. When Vinny joins them at the table, Gina introduces Chuck to her favorite Joe Pesci film. Uh, this is Chuck. Chuck, my cousin Vinny. Dad immediately re-asks what percentage of Gina's money Chuck is taking as her manager, and we cut back to the office of Dean Hunta. The seal of the college hangs above Hunta's desk and resembles an iron cross with the Hooters College motto, Semper Erectus. Always erect. <laughs> she has two of the three sorority captains here and thanks them for shoving the Phi Beta runner into the dirt. The voice of her secretary, Carl, announces through the intercom that the fat one is here, and Hunta tosses the intercom across the room, triggered by the word fat. Carl's voice, by the way, is some sort of Peter Lorre impression with the maniacal yeah. laugh of the Crypt Keeper. Like, I don't get what he's doing. It's just like a crazy, creepy voice. Well, so there's supposed to be like this running gag that she's like a Nazi. Yeah. So like she's got like this weird German like guy on her on her box. Her, her you know, she's got the Iron Cross brooch that yeah. she wears for the college. I don't get it because there's no payoff. Right, and we never see Carl. Hunter tells the girls that one of these three sororities will be demolished to make room for a sewage treatment plant, and instead of just saying goodbye to the Phi Beta house, they will decide by physical contest. Also, as someone who lives relatively close, we, we both kind of live relatively close to a sewage treatment plant. Yeah. Um, you don't want to be anywhere near that thing. Yeah. Like it, they would, they're going to put it on campus. Yeah. It, like you, you get within like, like 200 yards of that place. You can smell it. Yeah. It's really, where is it? Um, it's just down the way. Um, if you follow the riverbed. Oh, okay. Um, and, and, uh, like, you know, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's right down there and, yeah. it, and it, it, it's a smell and it yeah, lingers yeah, yeah. on you. And sometimes when the, when the wind blows just right, yeah, it comes across. So if you're going to put that on campus, it's like a, you can't live anywhere near Right, it. yeah. There will be three events. Soccer. Wrestling. I especially like that one. And basketball. The first house to lose two events, Phi Beta, will be the one to go. But it also seems like she doesn't care about the Phi Beta, so why even... Give wh them this opportunity? Yeah, why even yeah I don't get opportunity? it. Phi Beta is excused after the announcement, and the remaining captains ask why Hunta hates Phi Beta so much, and she says no reason. It's just another example of senseless 
random violence perpetrated against the underdog. Oh, well, that clears that up. We cut right to the soccer contest. Hey, remember that subplot that seemed like the superplot before about a girl band? I wonder what happened to that. <laughs> oh, there they are, watching this game. Why? What do you want to come here for, anyway? I have this morbid fascination for pain and suffering. Oh, well, that clears that up. The game is Delta Phi's versus Phi Beta's, and of course the evil popular team are fouling all over the place. The Delta captain informs them that they will have to forfeit when all of their players have been injured. Gina decides that she's going to join the team and help them win. Hey, wait a minute. She's not in your house. She is now. It's that simple. You just say, I dub thee Phi Beta and they can play. Just start recruiting everyone in this park and then kick them out after the game. Whatever happened to Bernice, the girl who joined the house on a whim? They made it seem like she was going to be their ringer, but she's not even playing in the soccer game. Mm -hmm. When the Split's lead singer, Joan, sees them hassling Gina on the field, she punches out the Delta Phi captain, and voiceover informs us that the Phi Betas lost the game anyway. Well, I think, I would imagine they lost because of this. Well, the other team was fouling them all over the place. I don't, I don't know why this would be the end of the game. Gina does another talk directly into camera bit, this time with a brush microphone. She interviews the girls in the Phi Beta sorority house about their soccer injuries. She seems to be bullying them, poking one's broken arm, and shoving a girl on crutches to the floor before telling them all to lighten up. Joan has an idea. You know what I wish we could do? Drugs. She thinks they need a coach to train them, and Gina suggests Warwick the Giant. The only Warwick I can think of is not a giant, so that's funny <laughs> to me. In teaching them how to Dion wrestle... Warwick? <clears throat> that's the one. <laughs> She's a regular-sized person. That's who I meant. In teaching them how to wrestle, Warwick chooses Susie for his example. He pins her to the mat with a full-body press and whispers sweet nothings in her ear while he holds her down. But then he climbs off of her and she seems unconscious? Like, how hard was he pinning her to the ground, or is she pretending here? Suddenly we introduce a plot where Chuck the talent manager is being employed to help Vinny the mafioso cultivate a more masculine self-image. Why is this happening? Why, of all people, would this job fall to Chuck? <laughs> it's never explained. Yeah. He lives in a house full of mafiosos who are constantly telling him how to be. So is the implication that he and, and Gina are a couple? I guess. And so, maybe... But he only ever says he's her manager when he goes well, there. Well, and actually, when they first introduce him to her father... He assumes that. He assumes that they're in a relationship. He's like, no, 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 this is my manager. Mm -hmm. So I yeah. think she explains a way that they aren't in a relationship. Yeah. Vinny whines to Chuck about his trouble hitting on ladies. From the examples he gives, it sounds like his approach is a little crude. And for some reason, instead of suggesting he tone it down, Chuck recommends he learn hypnotism. And this makes perfect sense to Vinny. After practice, the Phi Betas gather in the locker room drenched in sweat. Joan thinks they won't win these events without cheating a little and suggests blackmailing Hunta somehow. Their heavier set team member, Midge, mentions that Hunta's husband, Harvey, is a perverted dentist and they make plans to catch him red-handed to force Dean Hunt's hand somehow. They find him drinking at his office after hours and taking hits of his laughing gas. Joan and Susan wander into the room dressed as a tooth and toothpaste tube. You gotta brush your teeth every day! Make those cavities go away! But dirty teeth are a terrible sin! So open your mouth and shove me in! Harvey seems pleased by this hallucination, and we are entreated, or more accurately, subjected to a fast-motion montage of the dentistry mascots chasing Harvey around his office and dressing him in drag before taking a handful of compromising photographs. We cut to Dean Hunta's office, where she flips through the photos. 
An attached note demands that the Phi Betas be allowed to dictate the rules of the remaining contest. Weird that they didn't just demand their building be protected yeah, yeah. from the threatened demolition, but that ends the movie here, so I guess that makes sense. Hunter calls in the other sorority captains and announces that the Phi Betas can pick the rules, but that they are also allowed to cheat if they have to to win. Apparently one of the rules they came up with was that the other team's girls all have to wear lingerie for the wrestling match. Nothing that would make it easier for them to win, Right. just a plan to accentuate the attractiveness of their competition. While the other teams argue about the change to the contest, Dean Hunter wanders into the locker room, and an accompanying breeze blows back everyone's hair and gets their attention. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a campus authority figure with similar wind powers every time he showed up to address the children he was in charge of? God, I really don't. Um... Should I say it again? Oh, uh, God. Uh, uh, up the Academy? That's right. Ugh. Every time Ron Liebman shows up, all their hair blows back and they're all acting like the room is cold for some reason. They're all shivering. In the wrestling ring, the crowd is shocked when the underwear uniforms are revealed, but Joan on the Phi Beta team is in a super tight shirt with no bra, which is actually more revealing than what the other girls are wearing. Because they didn't change the rules in a meaningful way, the Phi Betas are still losing handily until they catch a Sigma Phi girl in the corner and wrap her bra around the top rope so that when she steps away into the ring, she tears it off herself and flings it into Hunter's face in the stands. Midge jumps on the mortified girl, and they've won the contest in a weirdly mean way to be considered the good guys of this story. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what did they do to you that was so terrible here? You just embarrassed and stripped one against her will and then attacked her, and then, good job, guys. Let's crack open yeah. the champagne. Which they literally do. Yeah. They have, like, bottles of champagne ready. Yeah. As they celebrate in the locker room, Vinny sneaks in dressed as a female janitor to try and sneak a peek at his cousin's jugs, but in his distracted state, his wig falls off and the girls freak out on him. But th there's just so much, I mean, I guess I would say unnecessary nudity, but there's mm. these extra scenes thrown in just so that there's a ton of like, right. naked yeah. girls in this yep. film. And so while they're celebrating, he's not just in the locker room. They're all going into the shower, right, stripping yeah. naked and shooting each other with bottles of champagne. Yeah. Which I will allow. No, no, no. I will allow. <laughs> no, here we For out. the rest of the film. <laughs> no, here we out. Because the next scene that we're going to have uh, is full of like shirtless dudes running yeah. around with abs. It's like, okay, All you know right. what? This movie has I'll a nice balance. I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah, this is a nice balance. We cut to Chuck and the Splits arriving at a diner that night before tomorrow's basketball game. They notice a fully decked out stage and launch right into a song for the bored and sleepy diner staff. And here, I can just sit back for a minute in my note-taking and just mention that a second full performance of the same Suburban Nights song from their first concert unfurls before me. Somehow, the song evolves into a diner-wide performance art with matching costumes and teams of dancers. It's like, was this all rehearsed? There's, like, choreography here. At a grocery store across town, we get our first indication that Vinny's hypnotism studies are paying off. He hits on a girl in the produce section, and she is resistant at first, but he wins her over. What'd you sign? Yield? <laughs> Just a little joke, kind of break the ice. Drop dead. I wish you hadn't said that, but look, how are you supposed to know I only got 48 days to live? What? You only have 48 days to live? Well, 51 counting legal holidays. So look, it's been nice knowing you, and uh, I'm in the book, huh? She says he looks healthy, and he advises her to look much closer. I thought he was just going to go for a sneaker kiss, but then a theremin begins to play, and it seems she is under his spell. 
We cut back to the final contest, basketball. Unfortunately, the Phi Beta ringer, Joni, is missing from the court. Again, the Phi Beta changes to the rules don't help them at all. In fact, this time the rule change hurts all players because the basketball game is now a strip basketball game and every made shot forces the opposing team to remove an article of clothing. In preparation, Midge has shown up wearing 10 or 12 layers of shirts. Uh, it reminded me of Martin Prince in the swimming pool. Take your best shot! I'm wearing 17 layers! <laughs> I brought this on myself. We see a flashback as the opposing team kidnap Joni and lock her in an equipment closet, so they expect there's no risk of them losing their shirts today anyway. Bernice is back for this game, but barely plays a part after seeming a lot like a protagonist at the start of the film. Right away, the baddies are scoring, and Midge is having to strip off layers. On the sidelines, we see Warwick and Chuck taking this very seriously, so I want to zoom out a bit here and remind you that the girls in the band he represents have just randomly joined this team on a whim, and it would cost them nothing to just go leave and perform music like they seem to aspire to. It feels like a rejected Josie and the Pussycats episode, where a girl mm. band just shows up and does a good deed out of the kindness of their hearts and then rocks a concert venue that night. There's still an entire third of this movie left to unfold. Phi Beta continues losing, stripping, and worrying about Joan. In the closet, we see Joan screaming for help through a vent, and eventually she lights up a cigarette to blow smoke signals through the vent into the gymnasium. Not only does Warwick spot the smoke, but he manages to parse the puffs into a specific Morse code. Hey, Susie, look over there. Smoke. Three small puffs of smoke. Two large puffs of smoke. Stop. Three short puffs of smoke in rapid succession. What do you suppose that means? Trapped in locker room, why? Warwick busts open the door to rescue her there. Oh, Warwick, thank God you came. First time a girl ever said that to me and I haven't got a single witness. Joan rushes back to the game and the team's luck turns around immediately. The Deltas are quickly stripping down and it seems like Phi Beta is on the victory track, but rewinding a bit, the rules of this three event contest were whichever team loses two contests would lose their sorority house. Phi Beta lost the soccer game, Sigma Phi lost the wrestling, so now Delta Phi is losing basketball. They're all even Stevens, everybody's yeah. lost one contest. In the last play, the ball bounces to Midge, who hucks a buzzer beater across the court to win. In celebration, Midge uppercuts the Delta Phi captain, and when she hits the ground, her boobs deflate, confirming Chuck's earlier unmentioned suspicion that she is patting her chest extensively. The next day, the Splits and Chuck are summoned to Hunter's office. On the way into the meeting, we get a bit of voiceover. Call it fate, providence, or just my lousy luck, whatever you want to call it. That reminded me of a Venkman line from Ghostbusters. Call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. And then inside the office, they learn that their sorority is being disbanded anyway. This college will no longer tolerate your insolence, your vulgarity, your moral degeneracy. And again, I was reminded of Ghostbusters, but maybe this is a personal problem I have. This university will no longer continue any funding of any kind for your group's activities. But the kids love us. <laughs> hey, Dean Yeager. <laughs> Even Chuck is being expelled alongside the girls just for being associated with them, which is also the first I'm learning that he's even a student here at all. Yeah, like... What? I almost forgot that they were students. I didn't know that any of them were students here. I thought they were just a girl band and their manager. They never study anything. They joined a sorority on a whim to win a soccer game. He tells her that's unfair, 
And she says, It is my ambition to be unfair. Even though earlier she said, Let it never be said that Dean Hunter does not play fair and square. The students are played out of the office with Chopin's funeral march. Do you guys recall the last time we heard Chopin's funeral march? Was it at a funeral? No. But people were dying. <laughs> no. Is it Sleeper? No, more recent. More recent than Sleeper? Mm-hmm. What did we watch after Sleeper? Wasn't that one of the last ones? It was one of the last ones. It was number eight of 12 for the Christmas special. Um, but it wasn't one of the Christmas specials. It was like our last movie of the year? No. Nope. Second last movie of the year. No, more Third recent. More recent than the Christmas specials. What? Was it Island of Blood? It was Island of Blood. What are you talking about? He played it at the piano and he said, oh. you have to play that in here? Chuck drives out to Gina's dad's place to meet with Vinny. Vinny is excited to see him and shows off five women he has collected and hypnotized from all over town today. Chuck is beyond cheering up because he's just been expelled from Hooter College, and on top of that, he's a shitty band manager. Vinny calls in his uncle's right-hand men, Louie and Tony, who he also has hypnotized, and orders them to call in favors for the biggest venue in town for the splits to play. Unclear why this is even necessary, since Gina is the daughter of the head mobster. Mm -hmm. And he could easily have been muscling the band into shows this whole time without needing hypnosis. The biggest club in town is the Palace, and Louie and Tony head straight there to negotiate a deal. Meanwhile, Vinny barges into Hunta's office in a fake handlebar mustache, pretending to pitch poetry to the college. But Hunta has no patience for it, and withdraws a loaded handgun from her desk <laughs> to point at his face. Because I live to love my camp, so do not laugh at And me. this is a gun. I, I, this was like one of the other jokes yeah, I got. <laughs> I like this a lot too. Eventually he gets into her head and installs some instructions. When you hear words, I gotta take a leak, you will fall into a deep trance, all right? I gotta take a leak. I gotta take a leak. You will remain in that trance until you hear loud applause. Applause. I gotta go. Thanks for so much, yeah. He sneaks out, and we see Tony and Louie at the palace arguing with the father and son booking agents, Mac Mogul Sr. and Jr. Sr. seems familiar with Louie and Tony by name, but when they walk in, he doesn't recognize them. After rejecting the palace request, Louie invokes the name of their boss, Mr. Napoleoni, before stomping on his own glasses. For some reason, the stomping motion jogs Mogul's memory, and they all celebrate finally recognizing each other and just booking the dumb show already. Mogul, in particular, recognizes Louis as being his own cousin. My long-lost cousin, Louis! Dance, Louis. Dance the way you dance the night of my wedding! Which reminds me of something out of the first Adams Family movie, when Gomez is testing his long-lost brother by dragging him to the dance floor to perform the mamushka during the film's climactic party. The palace bookers sign up Chuck and the Splits for the palace. Now that every story is wrapped up nicely, we begin a new plot with 14 minutes to go. Chuck calls Dean Hunter and says there's a big benefit show for her to attend at the palace. They invite her to speak, and for some reason she agrees to prepare a speech for it. We jump forward to the palace show. Midge and Warwick seem to hit it off in the audience. Hunter doesn't sense anything odd about being introduced to the stage by the guy she expelled earlier today. Yes. Of course, when Hunter's speech finally happens, she's halfway through when Vinny shouts, I gotta take a leak. Hunter seems to pass out, 
but then a song starts, and Hunter launches right into a musical performance, despite never being programmed for this part. The weirdest part of this scene is that she knocks the song out of the park and everybody loves it. Mm-hmm. So they didn't even embarrass her. Yeah. What was the point of this whole scheme? And she's also like wearing like a fancy dress like a underneath yeah. it. Yeah. And it kind of looks like lingerie or like a nightie. Done. Like I don't, was she wearing that stuff under the other outfit? I guess. As soon as her song ends, Hunter scampers off stage and the splits launch right into a song. Joni kicks off their set by firing blanks from a Tommy gun into the crowd, and a bunch of people dive for cover till they realize it's part of the show. The splits play their best song so far, but they've all been okay. The booker for the venue is so impressed, he signs the splits for a long-term deal. Chuck is excited about his share of the contract until Gina's dad walks up and he pretends he'll barely make anything to avoid an argument. Pointless voiceover takes us to the end of the song and we fade to black for credits. Do you remember the last time when a band played and the booking agent immediately signed them to a contract after hearing them play one song? It was also a venue that was difficult to get. Blanking on it. No idea. Blues Brothers. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, that's the end of the film. Splits. Yep. That is the end of Wait, this film. Okay, so they don't get back into college, but we're okay with that? Yep. Because they got a Because contract. we didn't know that they were in college until <laughs> they got expelled. Well, but I guess the contract makes up for it, so they don't need to go to college. The only reason that they're... I feel like this was going to be a meeting where the Phi Betas were going to find out that their house was getting destroyed. Either way, even though they won the contest. But it turns out the Phi Betas get what they wanted. So one of those other sororities is going to get demolished. The Phi Betas get to stick around and something had to happen to these people, but they don't care about college. They don't study. They don't go to class. They just perform music at shows and go to sorority day because it's their favorite thing. I don't get it. You know, the other thing that I don't get about this movie is there's some Blondie songs in here. How did they afford Blondie songs? There's a whole bunch of popular music in this. It's like uh, Fear No Evil all over again where you're like, how did you afford this? This movie cost nothing for sure. Yeah, if you watch the movie past the credits, there's uh, the song credits are like in credits after the credits. Like the credits are done. Weird. All, all the way through to the copyright. And then there's a couple of inserts of just black screens with the song, the, the pop songs that have been featured in this movie. Well, this didn't get a DVD for the longest time, but that's the hardest part usually of getting these on home video. And this is from a home video release. This is from a DVD. Hmm. Um, but you can find it on Tubi also is, is uh, the version that we watched. What's, what's strange about this movie is it feels like it's meant to be a parody Right. This feels like it's a parody of 80s college sex comedies. Do you want to hear what I think happened? So uh, Porky's we're going to get to later this year. It had already started to play in small circuits like local theater venues the year before. 
but it didn't get a full wide release until 1982. So I think this is a situation where they were making a movie about a girl band and they were reading all these articles about how well Porky's was doing and they were like, we're going to beat Porky's to the market and we're going to put together a Porky's ripoff yeah. before Porky even hits theaters. So kind of like a, Ruckus was first blood. Right. So they took an, they took a movie that they were already underway on and did, mm-hmm. and then crammed a college yeah. comedy on top of it. Yeah. And and I think that obviously the reason that you're going to cast Shirley Stoller in this is because she she looks like the ball breaker character from yeah. the Porky's movies. Um, I mean, I think Shirley Stoller's great, honestly. I, I think she brings a lot to the table. She's actually really funny. But this movie is not good. And it was a waste of her time. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad she got to be a major character in it. But, um, yeah, this one's not worth watching. Definite thumbs down. The, the, the two weird things, like, like they're doing, like, the Frau Blucher thing with her where every time her name is, is said, lightning strikes and wind blows. Yeah. And power goes out. It's just like, but it, does Dean Hunter mean something? Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. Is it is well? Hunta like is a, like a is like a military attack group, isn't it? The Hunta. Yeah, isn't it also a virus? Also, the poster made me mad because it shows like a girl on roller skates. There's no roller skates in this movie, and it has nothing to do with. I I don't think one cheerleader does the splits. Mm-hmm. I don't know why the band is called the Splits. Why is it so important to the dean that a sorority that the sororities even exist? Do, do deans care about that? Uh, this it, one does for some reason. I mean, it'd she be, explains be, the reason why. It's because she hates underdogs. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it would have been one thing like if she was like a former member of one of the sororities. Or yeah, and they, like they hint like that's going to be the reason. She's like, oh, is there some secret from your past that makes you hate them so much? And she's like, no, I just hate them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, okay, that works. Because they were like, maybe they started to write that other yeah. story and they're like, this is such a cornball, dumb, fake right. excuse. Like, let's just make fun of that trope. Well, because National Lampoon's, you know, it, it, it was just like, you're like, like, oh, they're always up to stuff. You know? Yeah. And, and, it wasn't and, like he got pantsed or something mm-hmm. on picture day. Yeah. So thumbs down. Where does this go on Letterboxd? Is this above or below? Ugh. Oh, boy. That's really tough. It is, right? I guess I would put this above Island of Blood. I would, too. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like it's like I almost want to <laughs> put it below Island of Blood. Here's the thing that, that Island of Blood has going for it. A Blu-ray transfer. That's yeah. it. That's, yeah. it. Yeah. That's really yeah. this, all that pushes this. At this at least had some songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that was okay. That's some musical numbers. Yeah, but there's not even a boob. <laughs> so wh- how could you possibly justify putting Island of Blood <laughs> above this? Yeah, there there was enough boobs to, to make it yeah. float to the top mm-hmm. here. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> float to the top. <laughs> Our director here was Dominic Paris, who previously wrote and directed a small 1980 horror title, Dracula's Last Rites, which we'll come back to for a minisode eventually. I'll get there. The writers, Bianca Littlebaum, just this. Harry Azorin, just this. Kelly Van Horn. This was Kelly's only writing credit, but Kelly also worked as a producer on Dracula's Last Rites and later on bigger titles like Billy Crystal Vehicles, City Slickers 2, and Forget Paris. <laughs> Yeah. Because she, she definitely wants to forget about the Paris yeah. of this movie. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. That, that's where the title came from. It's like, oh my God, I still have nightmares about that dumb splits movie. Forget Paris. And later, the 98 Godzilla, 13th Floor, Eight-Legged Freaks, and Day After Tomorrow. The music here came from Sarah Larson. Not many credits I recognized. Other music credit for George Small. Same. Not much I recognized. Cinematographer here was Ronnie Taylor. I can't tell if this is somehow a joke credit, but Taylor would win an Oscar the same year as the director of photography on Richard Attenborough's Gandhi. The DP of Splits <laughs> no. was the DP of Gandhi. 
No. That's oh. what it says on IMDb. <laughs> well, the the DP of Terror Train was also the DP of The Shining. Terror Train is fucking great. <laughs> it looks beautiful. Before this, he lit Tommy and so far on the show, Savage Harvest. The editor here is Betty Jane Cohen, who has assistant editor credits on The Incredible Shrinking Woman, Bustin' Loose, and The Abyss. Another editor is Rick Shane, who previously cut Eyes of a Stranger and later Nightmare on Elm Street, Dutch, Theodore Rex, Pitch Black, and the first MCU Hulk. Robin Johnson played Gina Napoleoni. After Times Square, she was contracted to Stigwood's production company for two more films, but was eventually released from the contract without a second film. We saw her in our first season as Nikki Murata in Times Square, and she's back later for 21 episodes of Guiding Light, and then she's a punk girl in Scorsese's After Hours. Barbara Bingham played Susie. We saw her last as a dancer in the Octagon, or at least I think it's her, because IMDb also says that she was Colleen Van Dusen in Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, and based on screenshots, they are definitely not the same person, but they have the same name. So this is either the girl from Octagon and Not Friday, or neither of them. Shirley Stoller played Dean Hunter. She was Mama Reese in Clute. She's John Savage's mother in Deer Hunter. We've discussed her work in Secondhand Hearts and in Minisode, Seed of Innocence. Later, she shows up as Mrs. Steve in Pee-wee's Playhouse and Mrs. Swirlin in Malcolm X. Raymond Sarah played Vito Napoleoni. He has small parts in The Gambler, Dog Day Afternoon, Marathon Man, and Manhattan before this. We've seen him in Voices, Hoodlums, Arthur, and Wolfen, but I know him best as Chief Stearns from the first couple live-action Ninja Turtle movies. Martin Rosenblatt played Louie. He was Alvy's uncle in Annie Hall. Sal Carollo played Tony. We saw him last as Serpico's dad in Serpico, and before that as part of the angry mob in Knight Riders trying to break up the show. Sally Prager played Bernice, the girl who gets shoved to the ground during the foot race and then comes back during the basketball game. She played the little girl Claudia from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. She's the one who inherits that uh, art piece from, uh, was it Ingrid Bergman that played the? Yeah, it was it, it was Ingrid Bergman, yeah. right? It was like one of her last films. Dom Herrera played Vinny Mama Basta. He's a popular comedian with guest appearances all over the place, including a voice on Rocco's Modern Life as Slippy in two episodes. He was prop comedian Ronnie Kay on Seinfeld. He's a chauffeur in The Big Lebowski, but I usually think of his guest spots on Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. He was on there a lot. John Bennis played Harvey Hunter. He also plays Harvey in Weekend at Bernie's, and later he's Hollings in Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice. Deborah Paris played Doris the Referee, she shows up at each of the contests. I didn't really mention her, but she just is very excited right, to be right. here. Not many credits I recognize, but likely a relative of director Dominic Paris. David Lipman played Mac Mogul Sr. We've seen him now as the state senator and exterminator. I think the one who gets shot in the dick at the brothel. And again, as Woody Allen's chauffeur in Stardust Memories. Later, he shows up in Frankenhooker as her trick. And then Bonfire of the Vanities and as a movie patron in Weekend at Bernie's. More recently, he's credited as the first lawyer in the Coen Brothers True Grit. Jeff Rocklin played Mac Mogul Jr. We just had him in our season two finale as Shovel, the heavyset cadet in Taps, who has to be reminded not to eat a grenade. Later, he's Nicholas in Cutting Class, and I don't see any credits after 1990, but he has up-to-date headshots on IMDb, and he looks so familiar to me. Looks like just a pleasant dude, too, so I hope he lands something soon. Deborah Jean Dickinson played Fern's teammate, she only has a few credits, but they include Young Girl Hooker in Barfly, which is one of my favorite Mickey Rourke performances. Philip Levi played Tweeter. He was Junkie Tommy in The Ten. 
<laughs> I think that's the for the animated sequence where there's like a bunch of junkies hanging around in a mm. room and they tell them about some rhinoceros that that lied a bunch. Marion Vitali played board member with Fish. This is her third and final film. We've now covered all of them with a mini-sode review of canon film Hot T-Shirts and one first season review of Christmas Evil. Nan Friedman played a dancer. She's also credited as lizard performer in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Shanna Hall played Phi Beta Girl. She was Bonnie Lombard in Boogeyman 2, which we'll get to next season. Angela Nicholas played Phi Beta Girl. This was her first film, but she's possibly best known as the Lady in Red from a four-episode arc on Deadwood. Everything else has been mostly pornish stuff until recently, but her latest film, Cherry, actually looks great from the trailer I saw, and she's the second lead in it, so good for her. Jeffrey Scott played Nerd. We saw him last for his role as half of the prom couple in Warriors who are intimidated off the subway late at night. His third and final credit is as George in the 1985 Future Kill. Christopher Missiano played Yo Babe Guy. He works mostly as a director and producer now. He directed 11 ERs, a couple Good Wifes, and 15 Suits. But on the producing side, he produced 22 ERs, 110 West Wings, and 30 Suits. Ralph Carrado Jr. played Fighter. He's back later this season as Looter in Alone in the Dark, his second and final credit. Sonia Zamina played Bag Lady. We've seen her now as the elderly woman in Eyes of a Stranger when the girl lands on her balcony and runs through her apartment. And just before that, as the elderly Harbinger woman, also credited as Bag Lady in The Fun House. God is watching you. God is watching you. Bill Hughes Collins played Drunk. He was Otto last season in The Prowler, his only other credit. I think all we see of Otto is he bumps into someone at the dance at the beginning of the movie. Um, those are all the credits I have for this one. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. If you enjoy what we're doing, consider giving us a review on iTunes. I don't believe it helps our visibility, but it's good for morale. And if you really like the show, maybe you should join our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash vintage video pod. Patrons are currently choosing between Blazing Saddles, Busting, Deep Throat 2, Deranged, Thieves Like Us, Sugar Hill, and Zardoz for a 50th anniversary review next month. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Aftermath, which IMDb describes like so. An astronaut battles mutant cannibals after returning from space to find Earth ravaged by nuclear and biological war, a B-movie cult classic. We leave you now with the trailer for The Aftermath.
just want to indulge in revenge, don't you? Jackson. 